This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Greetings, listeners. Rob Wolf here in New York City. This is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy, number six with me as host. Today, we're entering a world of dying divinities and depositions, idols and investments, priestesses and poets and offerings to gods and options for shareholders. In other words, I'm speaking with Max Gladstone, whose craft sequence of now three books is a mashup of fantasy, legal thriller, and a lot of other things. I won't be able to do it justice, so I'm going to stop right there. His newest book is Full Fathom 5, which is a freestanding story, but set in the same world as his previous two books, Three Parts Dead, which came out in 2012, and Two Serpents Rise, which came out in 2013. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rob. Happy to be here. I thought I would start by asking you just explain how you tell people about the book, people who don't know anything about the craft sequence. What do you say? Well, the craft sequence I generally start off is a post-industrial fantasy land. So you have gods with shareholders committees and skeletal necromancers running around wearing pinstripe suits and dealing with stock options and uh, gods who run or are run by water utilities. And Within that, there are a lot of different stories to tell. So in this case, we have the tale of a small island where they make sort of fake gods, they make idols, sort of cut to order for people who are interested in having something to worship, but they don't want to have all of the actual trouble of dealing with a proper uh, god that's going to talk back to you and order you around and such. So our main character, Kai, is a priestess who gets involved in building these things. Unfortunately, the idols that she builds and that her friends build start, start dying. Bad stuff starts happening, and when she investigates it, she's kind of sidelined by her priestly order. Then she starts a bit of an investigation on her own, and as she does that, she begins unraveling the whole fabric of her island society. So, in general, there's, there are a lot of parallels to aspects of modern business life and to financial and legal thrillers, but there's also a solid epic fantasy component going on there as well. You know, as you say, there are these elements of different kinds of storytelling, and I know it can be a no-win game to try to categorize things into a genre, <laughs> but is there a genre that encapsulates what you're doing, or is it, is it just a mashup of genres, like you say? Well, I'm on the border of a lot of different genres. So at its core, the books are mysteries, most of them, or legal thrillers. As far as where they fit within science fiction and fantasy kind of as a, as a subgenre, that's a little bit trickier because they're set in modern-esque cities, right? We have skyscrapers and modern conveniences, which is very much not the general line for what I'd call a secondary world epic fantasy, right? Where you have an invented set of cities and cultures and landscapes like you have in the craft sequence books. But 
if you were to look at sort of the urban fantasy line, which is the sort of modern cities and magic. That said, io9 had a really interesting characterization of the books as a sort of fantasy-based cyberpunk series, which I think is really cool and gets at a lot of questions that I'm playing with in these books about the relationship between large organizations and technological transformation in society. It's just, in a way, I feel like we've moved so far with modern consumer technology that trying to use a traditional science fictional lens to examine the kind of world that we're living in right now isn't as enlightening as a fantastical lens, which might sound a little bit weird, but even in the late 1980s cyberpunk, like core cyberpunk stuff, you have this wonderful vision of a future in which basically all the cool tech would be end user hackable and moddable in its design that you'd be able to basically pop open your computer and move stuff around. Whereas right now, our consumer tech is increasingly moving in a direction that is less hackable, that is less transparent. People can still do it, but it takes a much higher level of skill than we sort of expected it would, especially if you go back to good classic golden age SF, right, where you have Heinlein protagonists hacking together interstellar rockets in their backyard out of scrap. I have an iPhone in my pocket that has mechanisms which theoretically there are people on the, in the planet, well, certainly there are people on the planet who understand many different pieces of how this device fits together, but, uh, but nobody really understands the whole. It, you know, that's 40 or 50 people's life's work, and that's not even getting into the material science that's underlying it and all of the mining operations that are necessary to pull the raw materials for this stuff out of the ground. So I, I, I kind of like thinking about it in terms of magic, in terms of stuff that is presented to us that we're then sort of forced to learn the rules and kind of how to respond either positively or negatively to the rules that we're presented with. I don't know if that makes any sense. It's a bit rambly, maybe. <laughs> no, well, it makes perfect sense. Oh, great. You know, just the other day when we were watching Netflix and the uh, Xbox needed to update, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's this complete mystery. Like, who is intruding in our home? We click, you know, yes, update. You know, what is it actually doing? And as you say, how many people went into crafting these updates to various aspects of this mechanism that I could never myself fathom and as you point out probably it would take dozens or 50 people to explain all the pieces of and then update on top of it layers another <laughs> form of complexity and and it feels kind of alienating i'm like are they adding a camera function that they can spy on us now like what what did they just update you know yeah it's it's this weird sort of paranoia escape that you can enter into the more you start thinking about that and you start seeing in um, modern SF and fantasy this sort of merging trend as time passes. Um, modern science fiction, sort of cutting-edge science fiction books, the ones that aren't set in the immediate, and I mean like next five years future, like Ramez Nam's books, um, are, are set in worlds where the operation of the technology doesn't tend to be as amenable to analysis. So I'm thinking here about a book like Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie, which came out last year, where you have a whole bunch of space opera stuff that's going on, very high tech level on average, but an incredibly complicated weapon that absolutely nobody has any clue how it works will just be referred to as a gun. Or this sort of set of faster-than-light travel engines will just be referred to as engines because that's what people who weren't scientific experts would refer to them as in, in the local universe. And then right, of course. you go all the way out to like Hanu Ryanemi's works where the tech operation is so incredibly over the top that even 
the physical properties that are underlying the operation of the devices are sort of on, on the very furthest edge of cutting edge science and, and technology and mathematics, even in a lot of cases. Meanwhile, you get fantasy novels that are more and more interested in the question of like, what are the rules of the magic system? What are the contradictions inherent in those rules? How can we exploit them? Like, I feel like science is sort of realizing that we're getting to this point where we need, or science fiction rather, is get realizing that we're getting to this point where the grasp on the on the devices is sort of more slippery. Whereas fantasy is realizing that rules are all the more important rules and who's bound by them and when we can violate them. Fascinating. And if you know Anne Leckie, tell her that I want to interview her for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 if I get a chance to see her, I will certainly let you know. Okay. I've only met her once. She was fabulous. Um, but I met her at Worldcon this year and amazing person. So, so let me ask you, how did you build this world? I mean, and let's start with it initially. How did it come to you? Uh, you know, what was your first inspiration? Was it a dream or was it a late night conversation with a friend? Um, it was a combination of a lot of different things, actually. Uh, I'd spent a few years after college working in a nonprofit that sent teachers over to rural high schools in China to work and you know, teach basically oral English. So it was a small program, and as a result, we were dealing a lot with the people who were in charge of fundraising and finding new opportunities, new sites to develop. And I had this sense which um, isn't a, is sort of a reflection on the nonprofit community in general. I'd, I'd often growing up had this general like NPR-ish sense that nonprofit good, for-profit, like bad, destructive to the world. I mean, very much sort of liberal parents growing up in, in the countryside kind of thing. And I had this realization that many of the people we were dealing with to make this, comp- to make this nonprofit mission work were these huge Chinese landlords whose money was coming from sort of ambiguous places or large companies that I had kind of instinctively grown up thinking were maybe sort of dangerous groups to be associated with. Well, anyway, the goods and the bad guys weren't as uh, distinct as I thought they were or weren't as clearly differentiated as I thought they were. So then I got to thinking, because being a fantasy nerd from way back, I got thinking about sort of the Dungeons and Dragons vision, you know, where you have, uh, you have like the evil guys who are sitting on their thrones of bone and cackling about whatever schemes they're dreaming up. And then you have the paladins and all the good folks who are running around trying to heal the land, which was destroyed. And, and I was thinking, wow, it's more like the, the, the sort of paladin guys are working for the other guys or are working with them anyway, or they're both trying to figure out how to do this, how to work in this larger system. So I, I kind of was spinning on that for a while, this notion of like paladin making deals with, with making sort of NGO-esque deals with lich kings. And, and then I got back from China in 2008, which was, well, October in 2008 was the big financial crash or sort of the culmination of several months of big financial crash that had been happening up until that point. And even though trillions of dollars of value had disappeared overnight, or hundreds of billions of dollars at the very least, you couldn't really go around and find a particular piece of damage in the physical world. It's like you couldn't find a crater where Lehman Brothers used to be or something. So this was sort of damage that had taken place on a spiritual plane, on, on, a, on a plane of ideas, right? And so you had all of these 
um, ostensibly immortal, ostensible entities, ostensible persons, really, in, in, in legal speak, um, who had died or were dying or were at the very least bleeding out all over the floor. And then you had um, other folks, like human beings, who were running around trying to carve them up and put them together into new sort of working systems before everything went all higgledy-piggledy. So, so I got this kind of vision of, you know, you've got these necromancers basically engaging in the sort of bankruptcy process on a dead god or a dying god. And from there, I kept following that metaphor of sort of organizations as divine beings or semi-divine beings and people as working with them or against them or kind of both at the same time with their own agendas and society is is sort of evolving processes and yeah wizards running around carving up gods with knives made of lightning using law textbooks and i kept following that thread ever since it's the more i pull on it the more it seems to unravel so we can count this as one of the positive byproducts of the financial collapse of 2008 <laughs> well it certainly gave uh, a lot of people more time to think about stuff. No, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, it makes a lot of sense, especially if you think about, I mean, what is money today? You know, it's not backed by gold. I never really understood the gold standard anyway. I mean, could you really go into a bank and get a chunk of gold for your money? Uh, or is it just something we had, we had a faith <laughs> that, you know, when there was a gold standard, you thought you could do that, but no one ever actually did it because if they did, there probably wasn't enough gold to, to match all that money. But even now, you know, what's, yeah. what's behind it? Isn't it really just faith or even just um, electrons? I, I think about that with my direct deposit. And then I use my credit card to pay, and then I pay online my credit card. And so I've never held any money. It's just electrons zooming <laughs> around. And, and somehow that does actually seem like some kind of mana or, or soul, which is the currency in the craft sequence. Yeah, exactly. I mean... There are some economic consequences of me handling currency the way I do in the craft sequence where people are actually paying for things with chunks of their spirit. Um, one of them is that there are, you can't really adjust uh, interest and exchange rates to alleviate inflation. So there might be some monetary problems coming up for the world of the craft sequence in the next couple books, depending on how things develop. Uh, but yeah, it's, it really seems to me like we have these kind of information echoes and our net worth or currency, our bank accounts, those sorts of things are, are sort of a real shadow of us on this, you know, you could call it a financial plane, but, you know, we talk about astral planes and fantasy all the time. So, yeah, the, the process of writing the books has been a great game for me. I really am intrigued by the kind of work I'm doing here, but also it's fun to continue using this lens to examine different portions of the world. And, and it, so far, it seems like I, it, it seems that I keep finding new ways that, uh, that the metaphor fits. Well, you know, you just mentioned that you had spent time in China. And I wonder, you know, when people are immersed in a culture that's very different than their native culture, I think sometimes it opens people's imaginations. And I wonder, it sounds like it did play a role in your making these connections about the for-profit sector and the not-for-profit sector. But I wonder if, you know, the language or other cultural things sparked your creativity as well. 
In a, in a few ways, where I was in southern Anhui province, uh, most of my students were the children of farmers. Some of them had, you know, three, four-hour commutes. They could only go home from school on a long, week-long, week break. Um, so living with them and being surrounded by fields, and even though I grew up in the countryside in the States, knowing and living with folks who were you know, tilling their fields with water buffalo every year was very, was very different. It gave me a real sense of the range of the world that we're living in. And I, I, don't, I don't mean this in some sort of abstract, like, man, it was really real, you know. But there were kids that I taught whose parents were tea farmers who did very well in the Gaokao and went, which is the college entrance examination in China, and who went off to Shanghai or to Beijing for high-level university careers in engineering and are now traveling around the world doing engineering or finance stuff. So this from, you know, kids whose parents were making, you know, a few hundred kwai a month, which maybe 20 bucks a month, farming tea leaves or farming bai tai. The thought that that's really the kind of range that exists in our modern world sort of blew my mind open. And frankly, at living without media really of much any kind while I was in southern China, you know, no television or no U.S. television anyway, a very constrained sort of internet situation, not too many books, gave me a lot of time to think and a lot of time to kind of get myself engrossed in the natural world and in the social world. So coming back to billboards and advertising campaigns and bank account statements and and all of that was this huge shock. And so I was forced to fall back on interpretive tropes from fantasy and science fiction, the kind of alien world building experience to to grok it all and do you speak chinese i do um i don't speak it as well as i used to i used to be very conversationally fluent let me ask you about your lead characters a lot of your lead characters are female are you drawn to female characters and do they pose any particular challenges for you as as a man to write them or maybe you find them easier to write that's a very good question there are a couple ways to approach it. One, and I don't know to what extent this is true, but um, one of the first things that springs to mind is this conversation that I've seen about um, video game avatars, about the sort of thought processes that men go through when selecting avatars, or just your Street Fighter character to be like a sort of Ken type, sort of big buff dude, or, or, uh, or a female character. And there are a bunch of joking reasons, some fine and some more misogynist that people give for that. But uh, one argument that I've seen that really struck home with me was the notion that rather than using a sort of self-insert character, a character who's supposed to directly represent you, you have a character who is different from you. So you are partners with that character and navigating the fictional world. And, and so rather than like Street Fighter becoming a power fantasy, it becomes this sort of exploratory thing. Where you're like, okay, okay, friends, let's go and fight M. Bison and try to save the galaxy. So there might be a little bit of that going on. Another thing is that, frankly, um, I don't feel that 
writing female characters is as insurmountable an obstacle as a lot of people seem to paint it. Gender differences are socially contextualized in, in a lot of different ways. There may be, if we were to construct a huge, like, billion-person sample Skinner box experiment, it's possible that there are some kind of um, overall traits that would emerge, but it's also possible there aren't. But at the very least, like, women get pissed off like men do and and get excited about cool things happening like men do and want to go off and have adventures and all of the a lot of the sort of core protagonist stuff that we want to talk about in fantasy and science fiction especially all the like go on adventure solve the murder like all of that is that's human territory you know so it it feels I don't see too much that is essentially gendered in the reaction to something like, oh shit, there's a fireball coming at my face. And then finally, personally, in terms of background, if we wanted to come up with that, like my extended family, there are a ton of really cool women in it who are super awesome and have been doing great stuff with their lives. And I am honored to know all of them. So it, I don't know. It just never seemed weird to me writing this way. I've just been reading a lot of science fiction from the fifties mm-hmm. where, you know, the men and women, even though they're projected into the future, mm-hmm. the man is still the adventurer and the <laughs> yeah. little lady is at home cooking and supporting the man. So I suppose you, you could carry, you know, current uh, cultural norms into the fantasy world, or you could use the fantasy world as a as a chance to to break with that and 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 take things in a new direction. Absolutely, and that's a a real challenge when writing science fiction and fantasy. When writing anything that you're setting in a world that's different from your own, there's this wonderful Lois McMaster Buyold short story called "The Borders of Infinity," and in it you have a the central character Miles is dropped into a prison with a whole bunch of other prisoners of war. And the prison is built as this kind of panopticon where you have an enormous dome and there are no walls or any other forms of shelter. There's no weather and it's kept at a reasonable temperature and, and, um, and that sort of thing. But other than that, it's just a whole bunch of people in this dome. Supplies are airshipped in and it's kind of a dog-eat-dog situation when he shows up there. And of course, his plan is to try to mastermind a breakout But because a lot of people have been in this position for so long, um, their sense of the universe has started to be constrained by the borders of the dome. They're really interested in being the best prisoner inside uh, inside this dome or having the most influence, but they're not really interested in breaking out or they haven't been thinking too much about breaking out. It's all been sectarian politics and gang on gang violence. So, the borders of infinity in the title are referring to the fact that inside this space, these people's imagination has been constrained to the point where all they can imagine is being the big dog inside this dome. And I feel like that's a huge danger in world building centered fiction that we grow up in a kind of dome and the dome is formed by all of the ideological assumptions that we run into or that people try to inculcate uh, into us. Sometimes we have really strong personalities and are capable of 
detecting that or, or just very good ears and are capable of detecting when we're being forced into a particular way of thinking. But often we don't know any better when we're kids. So you, know, you grow up and then you start imagining strange, distant things, weird landscapes, but the core of all those strange things and weird landscapes, the core of that escapist fantasy is something that's still very much within the boundaries of the dome. This is sort of stealing a Slavoj Zizek point a bit from Pervert's Guide to Ideology. He says, you know, we're so ideologically conditioned, we're very bound up, we desperately want to escape. And there's a great Ursula, I think it's an Ursula K. Le Guin quote about how it's sort of the prisoner's duty to escape. We want to escape, but the methods of our escape and the destination that we envision are shaped by our ideological desires, shaped by that very thing that's keeping us prisoner. So I try really hard to examine when I'm writing fiction what I'm doing and why I'm doing it because I have this running suspicion that a lot of my reflexes are not helping me in the same, or, or are not doing things that I want to be done in the same way that the first time you step on a fencing strip or the first time you try to climb a wall, a lot of your reflexes are going to be working against your actual goal. So pay attention for the ideology look for the borders of infinity, try to edge beyond them. And, and do you have any practical advice for, for how to do that? Um, personally, well, here's one thing, one question that I try to ask myself regularly. And it's not a sort of iron rule, but it's, I found it very helpful, which is whenever you're writing a character and you're, you are writing somebody, you realize like it's just you know, a, a bouncer or somebody who's behind a bar or something like that. And you're writing, you're writing this character and you're thinking of them and you're realizing that you're thinking of somebody who you would see in a sort of central casting scenario, right? Like you turn on the television and you see a lot of straight white male bartenders, see a lot of white guys in sort of bad suits. It's helpful to think when that happens... Is there a reason that I'm doing this this way? Is there any reason this character can't look different, feel different, have a different body type, have a different skin color, have a different sexual orientation? Not, simp not without any other effects on the character, because obviously all of these things do certainly have an effect on the character. But just that mental exercise can force you to start building characters who are outside of that comfort zone, who are maybe not necessarily like charging straight through the borders of the wall, because that's, a, you need, I feel like you almost need to bring a much more radical agenda to that kind of a story than what I'm talking about here. But uh, at the very least, pushing beyond its edges or sort of colonizing new spaces, breaking down sections of the dome. I wanted to ask you about the, the numbers in your titles. <laughs> so, I mean, for listeners, your first book has three in the title. Mm -hmm. Your second book has two. That, you know, seems very logical. Uh, the third book, Full Fathom 5, uh, has five So mm -hmm. in the title. And then I understand your fourth book, which isn't out yet, is going to be called Last First Snow. And my guess is it's not actually going to be the last book in the craft sequence. No. So, can you say something about the numbers? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the numbers are a, a classic example of me overthinking stuff, which you may be able to tell I do once in a while. Um, 
I started off and I wanted to have a bunch of books with self-contained stories, right? Because I grew up in an age of enormous doorstopper series that went on for 40 volumes and like, oh my God, by the end of it, well, there was no end of it. You were always waiting for the next one to come out three years later. And that's fine. I mean, that's a wonderful way for people to do it, but I got kind of allergic to that. So I wanted to write stories that were self-contained, books that I could follow similar characters over a long span of time. But each book, you could kind of pick it up. And especially if you had some experience reading science fiction, you could just dive in and figure out who the characters were and what was going on. But for what I was trying to do, I wanted there to be a clear chronology. So I came up with the brilliant idea... I want to note that there are air quotes around brilliant there of um, of putting a number in the title of each book to sort of signify where it would fall on the number line. So three parts dead. I figured I'd had some room to explore before that and some a lot of room to expand after that. And so two serpents rise is set a few years previously. Full fathom five is a few years later. And last first snow is about 20 years before two serpents rise because it's the, the one, I guess, the last confuses everything, but it's a cool title. So um, first, you know, so that's the one in the title. And I'm working on a book that needs to have four in the title now, and I'm thinking about titles that have four in them. And it was all very clear in my head and has not been very clear, practically speaking, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, it's what's clear is that there's some purpose. And so it just adds to the mystery, I think. I mean, there's the sense anyway, that this means something. And I, I was kind of wondering, actually, it did occur to me that maybe there is, without having read the other two, I couldn't make that judgment. But I wondered if there was, it had to do with their eventual placement, that it was a little like the Star Wars series with the prequels and that might come later or... You know, I never made that connection, but you're absolutely right, though I would ha- really be reluctant to evoke the Star Wars prequels as, as the example of what I'm <laughs> for here. Well, just, yeah, exactly. Well, maybe, you know, Julio Cortazar wrote Hopscotch, and, and that has the chapters all jumbled up. So they actually have the numbers of the chapters, if I remember correctly, but they, they're actually put in the book in a jumbled order. But if you chose to read the book in order, you could find the number one and go to that first, but they're actually in a different order. So maybe it's like that. Yeah, it makes sense. Or Ian Banks has the use of weapons, which has two interlocking plot lines, one of which is going forward and the other one of which is going backward in time. Ah, cool. Yeah. So tell me about Choice of the Deathless. It's described on Steam, and that's the gaming platform where it's sold as a, quote, necromantic legal thriller by Max Gladstone. (laughs) So it sounds like a book, but it's a game, which is, let me read again, entirely text-based, without graphics or sound effects, and fueled by the vast, unstoppable power of your imagination. I love that line. Who doesn't want unstoppable power, even if it's imaginary? Um, so is it, I mean, it sounds kind of like a book, but it's a game and you're clearly like a gaming kind of guy. So it sounds like it brings together two things that you, you love very much. Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun to write. So Choice of the Deathless is a choose-your-own sort of past, choose-your-own-adventure type book. Um, You're moving through a novel, and you're controlling the central character. You get to make choices. Who is a junior associate at a craft firm, a sort of necromancy firm, dealing with demons and deposing goddesses and all that sort of thing. And you make 
choices that govern your character's life in the office, sort of personal objectives, relationships with other people in your office, and your own career of sinking into ignominy or rising to power as a necromancer, finding love, not finding love, becoming a skeleton, finding love while becoming a skeleton. I assume you have to write, to give people choices, you have to write different outcomes or different paths. Mm -hmm. So is it like writing many books and you, I mean, is it more work than writing just one book all the way through where you're making all the decisions because you have to write lots of alternate scenarios? Absolutely. Um, In some ways it's easier. Well, it's a, you know how like when you're writing a haiku, in some ways you can be inspired by the constraints of the form. I don't think I've ever written a haiku, but I understand the idea (laughs) of constraints giving, um, giving you room to be creative. Sure. So with Choice of the Deathless, there are some real constraints that people face when they're navigating a game like this, right? You have only so much text for one thing that someone is going to want to read before they come to a choice. You have a certain kind of format that you like things on screen. Big meaty paragraphs are generally to be avoided, so you want shorter things. And of course, you need to be making meaningful choices regularly. So that was a pretty substantial constraint on the way that I usually work. But it was very cool and helpful and inspiring in a lot of ways. It forced me to think about story structure a lot more and forced me to imagine not just the sort of first thing that would come to my mind that this character would do in this situation, but a range of options that would represent dramatically different characters who were having their own responses to a particular situation. And some of the choices in the game are just as simple as dialogue options, like responding to something that someone said. Some of them are as sort of out of the blue or large scale as deciding whether to betray your firm or not in a particular case or deciding whether to undercut a person that you're working with and if you wanted to do that, how you would do it. One of the real advantages of working in text-only games versus having sort of 3D modeling and cool art departments and all that, those fun bells and whistles is precisely that limitless power of the imagination. I have no budget, so I'm free to get as crazy as I want. There can be, and there are, several um, sort of hidden little pieces of Choice of the Deathless that are that would be huge set pieces that would require a lot of 3D animating if I was writing a um, an actual video game. Well, actual, I mean, it is an actual video game, but if I was writing like a game for the Xbox or something... Um, you know, you'd have the whole team of animators working overtime to get this stuff done. I can do that for a playthrough path that 5% of people will ever see, or like a tenth of 1%. That said, it did mean that for, you know, what would ordinarily be a very tight 2,000-word short story or novella, I'd have to write often at least four times as much. So somewhere in the, you know, ten to 13,000 range uh, in terms of words per chapter. Well, it sounds like an amazing puzzle. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Great. Well, so maybe people who hear this will check it out. This has been really great. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks for listening to me go off. Really cool questions. Great talking with you. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. So you've been listening to Max Gladstone, author of Full Fathom 5. That's the third book in his craft sequence. You can find out more about him at maxgladstone.com. 
I'm Rob Wolf, host of New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy, and let me know what you think of the show, or if there are authors you'd like to hear. You can reach me via the contact form on my website at robwolf.net, or via the New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy Facebook page. In the coming weeks, I hope to be speaking with Robert Silverberg, Brian Staveley, and the editors of a new collection called Hieroglyph Stories and Visions for a Better Future. Bye for now.